What great singing that was and what great words those are about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only attribute of God that in any verse in the Bible is spoken of three times in one spell swoop, God is holy, holy, holy. And I guess that's a great introduction really to the theme of our time this morning in the Word of God, the judgment of the false. We will in here in a little bit be celebrating communion, and in one sense communion is a reminder of that reality, judgment. And we are talking about that this morning from the book of Jude. So if you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles to our study of the book of Jude. Last Lord's Day, we were reminded in our study on Resurrection Day of the bodily resurrection unto eternal life of everyone who truly believes upon Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And just as His resurrection is and ensures the resurrection of all who have genuinely believed upon Him for salvation, so too also the resurrection makes certain the resurrection of each and every rejecter of salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone unto an eternity of judgment. Part of the reason we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning is because it highlights both of those realities, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the judgment to come upon those who reject. Judgment and sentencing is not something we oftentimes like to think about. Sentencing for crimes committed is not something that you and I oftentimes will sit around the kitchen table, particularly on a holiday or with family, and talk about at any length, because those realities are not pleasant. Judgment in the minds of any of us does not invoke in us thoughts of comfort and thoughts of ease. And yet, it's a very reality, very real reality, not only for the kingdom of God to come, but also in our world. In fact, you can just make a quick search on your own on the internet, and you will yield an entire list of the most severe sentences that have ever been passed down for crimes committed around the world. I did that this week just to kind of fulfill my own curiosity about judgment and crimes in the world, and the list goes from being sentenced to life in prison without parole. Of course, we hear of that often, and we don't necessarily think about that too much, but the list starts there, and then it goes in other countries to caning someone, which is a public event in which they lash out with an actual cane upon you, much like we read about in the Old Testament and New Testament at times when Paul was uh, struck nearly 40 times with a rod. Then it goes to stoning. Of course, we see that in the Bible. Then, of course, death by hanging or firing squad. The beheading of someone or even electrocution was on the list. All the way to being thrown from some kind of height, which would inevitably cause the inevitable death of the person once they struck the ground. So it really doesn't matter where you go in the world, and it really doesn't matter which sentence you may deem the worst in your own mind as you think about judgment by men, all of them end in the same place. All of them end with the one who committed the crime dying. Even the one sentenced to life without parole eventually just dies. Either way, they have to wait their entire lifetime until the natural effects of humanity takes them behind bars and takes them to the place they will inevitably go if they do not know Jesus Christ, or they are ushered into physical death through some other kind of artificial means. The end result is all the same. It's death. 
And so the worst punishment, think about it, the worst punishment that humanity can give at the hands of itself is physical death. That's it. That's the worst it can do. And yet, when we look at this small letter of Jude, given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Jude is writing these words, we quickly realize that the worst of all judgments doesn't even begin until death happens. The worst that men can do is physical death, and yet the worst of all judgments doesn't even begin until one dies. Remember that specifically here in Jude, he is talking about the worst kind of offender, the worst kind of criminal, if you will. He's talking about the person who is hurting the bride of Christ. He's talking about the person who is willfully hurting the church. Jude is talking about the apostate. He is talking about those that we have learned over time in our study of Jude, those who know the truth, those who have heard the truth, those who understand what it means, those who even maybe even claim to follow Jesus. And yet in reality, they are ungodly persons. They're ungodly who by their very lives have rejected the true gospel And they have turned the grace of God into an avenue for greater and greater sin. Jude tells us a severe judgment awaits the apostate. And Jude has already given us, by way of example, their coming judgment. You remember back in verses 5 through 7, Jude says, I desire to remind you, though you know these things, that the Lord, after saving the people out of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who didn't believe. They were those who were even part of the national people of Israel, and yet they didn't believe what God was doing for them by way of deliverance. They didn't trust in God, and so God allowed them to perish in the desert in unbelief. And of course, verse 6, angels who did not keep their own domain, angels who God had created to be holy, were unconfirmed in that holiness, decided to disregard their domain, what God had placed them, wanted to follow after, I believe, even Lucifer here was part of this, and swept them away, as the Bible tells us, a third of the angels. They abandoned their proper abode. God has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So their worst judgment is yet to come. Even when Jesus was on earth casting out demons, some of them said, don't send us to the abyss. We don't want to go there. Judgment is to come. In verse 7, Jude gives us that third example and says, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, what, indulged in gross immorality. So Jude, even here by way of the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, equates what the angels did and equates what unbelieving Israel did as being engrossed in gross immorality. Engrossed in such a spiritual immorality that God judges them in that way. They went after strange flesh. And so God brought fire from heaven upon them. So that's how Jude described them in verses 5 through 7. And then remember how Jude described them in just the few verses we looked at last time, verses 12 through 4 or 12 and 13. He said they are hidden reefs. In other words, they're like hidden rocks in the sea, hidden rocks under the water. They're they're secretly there, but they're destructive if you hit them. They are selfish. They are useless. They are spiritually dead. They are filthy, and their doom is certain. That's what Jude was saying in verses 12 and 13. Right? They're clouds without water. They have no fear. They're like winds 
or, or clouds carried along by the winds, but give no help, no water comes from them. They are trees without fruit. They're doubly dead. They're waves of the sea that cast up their own shame. They're wandering stars. See, all of those things left their proper abode and domain. And now, and now here in verses 14 through 16, Jude confirms that they have been designated for this judgment. This is now the confirmation of the reality of the judgment to come upon them. Notice what Jude told us at the end of verse 13. He said, They are wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. That's a frightening theme. It's a frightening reality. The reality of black tormenting darkness forever. And that theme continues in the mind of Jude as he pens these next few sentences in verses 14 through 16. This is the judgment that the Lord will bring upon the willful, ungodly rejecter of Jesus Christ. So this does not come from some earthly entity. This judgment is not passed down from some judge sitting on the quote-unquote Supreme Court of even a country holding someone accountable by some standard of law that has been exercised by men. No, this is a judgment from the king of kings. This is judgment from the one who cannot simply kill the body, but the one who can ensure that the soul is tormented forever. So let's mark this in our minds this morning as we think about this for the life of those whom we know, the life of the church. This is not myth. This is reality. Mark that in your minds. This is not just words. This is not simply a metaphorical picture. This is not fictional. It is not some oratory legend that Jude has put out there, and we quote these words as if it's some great oratorical kind of speech given, and we need to follow that. No, this is not some parable of some deeper truth that Jude is trying to tell us. This is none of those things. This is real future. The only future that awaits those who are being described here by Jude, this is it. This is it. And so we must take this to heart. We must take this to heart as Christians, as true believers in Jesus Christ. Why? Because just like all that we have learned thus far, all of this is a cautionary warning to us. This isn't a cautionary warning that we can lose our faith. That could never happen. Once you're truly saved in Jesus Christ by faith in Him alone, you can never lose your salvation. No, this is a cautionary tale that these kinds are out there and they have infiltrated the church. This is exactly why Jude is so serious about this from the very beginning. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to talk to you about the things we enjoy, the things we revel in, the things we know about Jesus Christ, but I could not. It's more necessary that I write appealing you to you to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Contending must happen from the believer to those who are like this. We contend because it's a warning to us, a cautionary warning to be vigilant, not simply because of the apostate, but also for the reality that God's judgment is real. God's judgment is real. In other words, and I want to emphasize this as our first point this morning as we walk through this, point number one is this, God does not make idle threats. God does not make idle threats. I remember years ago when I was listening to Dr. Mark Dever preach, the first time I'd ever heard him preach, he was preaching through Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2, and, you know, Ezekiel's got this mystery about God and all these eyes and the wheels going this way and that way. And being a, a young man who was 
in a church preaching. Uh, you know, sometimes when you study the word of God, you want to try to figure out the most profound reality that's there and, and see that because there's a sense in you that you want to be profound when you speak. And so I was thinking, okay, what is Dr. Deborah going to do with this passage? How is this going to be profound? And he said, you know what I, you know what I realized when I read this passage? Here's point number one. He said, God is not like us. And I thought, how simple and yet how profound. Well, that's the reality we find here in Jude. Jude is simply saying to us in verse 14, God does not make idle threats. God does not make idle threats. The first phrase in this verse is important for us, and it's easy for us to overlook if we are not careful. Because you notice that it says that Enoch prophesied. And that he did that in the seventh, he was the seventh generation from Adam. A couple words there that are included simply for reading when it says Enoch, the seventh generation is not a word in the original language that's put there in the New Testament. So it's there simply to, to flow for us in the English language so that we can read it from that way. But that's what he's saying. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, as you do, many of you look at it and read it on a regular basis, the Scriptures do not include Enoch's prophecy. There's nowhere in the Old Testament that you'll find Enoch having a prophecy in this way. And so what Jude is quoting here is what is now labeled in the archives of antiquity as First Enoch. First Enoch. It was a non-inspired book. In other words, it was a book that is not in Scripture. It's not Scripture. But it was something that was very popular among the early Jews. And in that book, by the way, of which today there's only a fragment left of it in Antiquities, but in that book there are these words that are almost verbatim what verses 14 and 15 say. That fragment that is still in existence is the fragment that contains these very words. Isn't that ironic? God in his sovereignty has preserved that portion, I think, just to help us. So Jude seems to be using the words of Enoch here in his inspired words, because we know what Jude wrote is inspired, because all Scripture is inspired by God, Paul said to Timothy, and these are words of Scripture that we have. And therefore, we can at least say that the Holy Spirit has no issue with these words. Because the Holy Spirit's the one who inspires, right? The Holy Spirit's the one who carried them along, as it says in 2 Peter. Even though these words in 1 Enoch are not part of the canon of Scripture, we know that when Jude says Enoch in the seventh generation prophesied, we know that whatever that prophecy said, and we have it here from the words that are close to, if not verbatim, with what is there in 1 Enoch, that it's from the Holy Spirit here. We ask the question, at least, if we're thinking about it, does that mean that everything in First Enoch should be seen on the same level as Scripture? And the answer to that is no. No. All we know is, at the very least, this statement from Jude is absolute truth. And what's the implication of that? What's the implication of what Jude says? The implication is just that. God doesn't make idle threats. God doesn't make idle threats. Why would anyone believe that what God says is just words or worse yet, myth? Why would anyone believe that? Because long ago, God told the ancient people of our world that judgment was going to come. You see, people say, well, God's word is really nothing. Really, it's just meaningless. Well, it's just words. It's hyperbole. It's stories. It's myth. It's Aesop fable kind of like words. Really? Well, years ago, God told the ancient people of the world that he was going to judge the world. In fact, it was only seven generations from the beginning of creation. When Adam was created, that God warned about the judgment. 
And by the way, God didn't just warn through Enoch. God also warned sometime later when he what? Flooded the earth. Flooded the earth. He flooded the entire earth, which was simply another warning that what God says, God will do. When God says he will do it, God will do it. And so the passage of time doesn't negate the word of God. That's that's the reality here. God doesn't give idle threats. Just because time passes, just because the clock ticks hours by, doesn't mean that the word of God is negated at any level. What God says, God does. And so Jude says here about these, about who? About those who are feasts or, or feast with you without fear, about those who are clouds without, about the apostate, Enoch also, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. He warned. And God warns simply because he's merciful, simply because he's gracious, simply because God in his righteous character is long-suffering. In fact, the Bible tells us that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. The prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23, he says this, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Again, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says to Ezekiel, you say to them, say to Israel, as I live. I always love when the Lord begins something like that. As I live. Now, how long is that? Right? That's the, that's the implication. We chuckle because we know exactly what that means. It means this is going to be forever kind of language. It's never going to change. I will not change. As long as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And so he proclaims to Israel, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? That's God. That's his message. That's his perpetual message to eternity. God gives warning. Why? So that people would turn from their wickedness and be rescued from his judgment. And the wicked are rescued. How? By listening to him. That's the only way we are rescued. This morning I was in our membership class, and we were beginning to hear testimonies. And what a joy it is to hear how God rescues the wicked from their blindness, how God takes them from darkness to light. What a joy it is from the warnings that he gives them about judgment and about their sin and about what they face in the future if they do not. And the wicked are rescued by that, by listening to him, by heeding the warning and repenting of their wicked rejection of him and believing him. Remember, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently they were destroyed, those who did not believe. God says, this is what I will do. This is who I am. I take no pleasure in destroying you. Believe. So God does not give idle threats, beloved. What he says he will do. He's shown it from the beginning of time. He's shown it all the way up into our day. And simply because the passage of time has gone on does not mean his word will not happen. But also, secondly... In God doing what he says? Secondly, Jude tells us that his righteousness is seen in what he does. He says, Enoch prophesied, and here's what he said, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. And stop right there. Just as Enoch foretold the coming judgment of God, so too it was a coming judgment in which his righteousness was on display. His righteousness was on display. Why? Because the Lord was coming with his holy angels. Some ask, really? 
really, is that what it's going to be like in the future when God judges? Is that what it's going to be like, the Lord coming? Well, here's how Jesus himself spoke of it to his disciples in the Gospels when they asked him to explain the parable of the tares among the wheat. Matthew chapter 13, here's what Jesus said. He said to them, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, there are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun. In the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. Really? Will it be like that? Well, as the Lord lives, you can better believe it'll be like that, because Jesus himself even says it will be like that. It will be a display of his power beyond anything we've ever seen. It will be a display upon, uh, of his glory beyond anything we could ever imagine. And the holy angels will be the ones doing the reaping. This is instructive for us, especially in the church, especially as we talk about the apostates being in the church, because sometimes we think we got to go and uncover everything and try to figure out who somebody is and they're, maybe they're a heretic or not. We don't need to do all that. We don't need to go heretic hunting. We need to be careful. We need to be cautious. Watch out who we listen to. Think about it. Take them to the Word of God. Be truth people. But God will deal with the rest of it. God will be the one who separates the tares from the wheat. That's why I read Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, because the Lord will be revealed, Paul says, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And what will he do? He will be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on these who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's not talking about the sanctification process of us Christians, those who truly know God, and sometimes we we obey, and oftentimes we're not obedient. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those whose life is that direction. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ, even though they might say they believe Jesus, their life is all kinds of worldliness. Therefore, while God is not making idle threats... Jude says his righteousness will be on display for every apostate will not be a group judgment, as some might mistakenly think. This is not going to be a group judgment. It will be individual. In other words, if one is an apostate, one is a rejecter of God, God has issues with you personally. This is why it's so dangerous to believe that you can have faith based upon the faith of someone else. This is why it's such a heresy that in the Catholic Church, someone will say, oh, we, we were baptized into grace. Our parents are saved. Our, our parents believe they're in the church. And so here we're baptized into the church as well. There's, there's this infusion of grace happening over time. That's a heresy. No, you will stand alone before God. Notice what verse 15 says in Enoch's prophecy, right? End of verse 14, the Lord came with as many thousands of his holy angels to do what? To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see that? It's personal. All the things we've done against him. That means that all willful rejectors have a personal violation between them and God. So 
a personal violation. God demands righteousness. God expects righteousness. And through words and deeds, every rejecter has unrighteously spoken against him. This is what makes this so frightening for the apostate. Because the apostate is in the church. It's not just somebody roaming around the world. This is those that have attached themselves to the body of Christ. They have infiltrated the bride of Christ. They are doing damage to the true church. And for God, that is personal. You have attacked his bride. How? Through every ungodly word and every ungodly deed. God is being maligned. His righteousness is being devalued. His glory is being stolen through what you say and through what is done. His honor is being forgotten. It's being diminished. It's being retranslated. It's being redefined in some kind of way. His salvation is being undermined. It is being uh, said that you can get saved in other kinds of ways. And therefore, his son is being shamed and his word is going untrusted. For God, that's personal. Not vindictive, but it is personal. In fact, we are reminded in the book of Acts, before the Apostle Paul became converted, it says he was persecuting the church. He was persecuting the church. He was hurting those who had believed upon the living Christ. He was, he was going after those who were part of the way, as it was called then. He was attacking Christians. He was attacking believers until that fateful day on the road to Damascus to carry out the very destruction that he had orders and letters to go and gather up people and haul them off into prison as he's confronted there by the risen Lord, and after he had fallen to the ground because the light was so bright he couldn't even see, and the guys around him were so stunned they couldn't even hear what was happening, Paul hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We read that and we know the story, but the reality is Paul was persecuting Christians. He was attacking Christians. He was hauling them off to jail. He was, like they're doing in Canada today, building fences around godly churches. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you coming after the church? Why are you coming after the church? Why did Jesus say that? Why? Because to come against the church is to come against him. You attack the church by your own willful rejection of God. God takes it personally. And one day, every rejecter will look into the face of Christ as he judges them. And he will judge them for every ungodly word and every ungodly deed done against him. And Philippians 2 says, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. One characteristic that runs consistently through every rejecter is the characteristic that Jude highlights here in verse 15. They are ungodly. 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 Asabes. That's the word. Starts with an A because that's the negative particle on the word that goes from that. Sebeomai is, is, the, is the verb form of that. And it simply means to adore. Sebeomai means to adore. Or to have reverence for. Or, or worship. To revere. To have a, a, a respectful fear of. They are asabes. They are those who are irreverent. They have no sense in which they are... Adoring God at all. That's what Jude's saying. They're ungodly. They're not claiming to not know God. They're claiming to know God. And yet here they are in this ungodly way. And how is that ungodliness shown? Through their words and their deeds. 
And all their words and all their deeds come out as harsh things which they speak against Him. And so the ungodly shows no adoration for God, no worship of God, and yet opposite to that is the godly person. The godly person does that. They show adoration and reverence for God and for the things of God, and they fear God. How do you know? Through words and deeds. Through words and deeds. And therefore, they're godly. But not so for the apostate. They are ungodly. Ungodly in character. And therefore, they are ungodly in their deeds. And ungodly in the way they do their deeds. And therefore, ungodly in the words about God. The song said that Christ is holy, holy, holy. Here in just this one simple sentence in Jude, Jude says they're ungodly, 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 ungodly. So all that is sinful is exposed as sinful. And all that is righteous will be seen for what it is. Why Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about wood, hay, and stubble. That which is done to honor and glorify God on this side of earth will be kept and show itself to be for what it is before the beam of seat of Christ. Well, all the ungodly will be judged and their ungodliness will be seen for what it is. And so what does that mean for us who are saved? How should we view all of this? I mean, we remember it's warning, right? It's a warning to us. And therefore, knowing this warning ought not to cause us to be uncompassionate, right? This, this knowing this and just, just having the weight of the reality of this, even though we're not part of this judgment, it ought to have in us this, this sense in which it is a sober-mindedness where we're not uncompassionate to people, but rather we should thank God or his repeated warnings. We should be thankful that God warns us. Sometimes I think we get tired of hearing the warnings. We get tired. We grow tiresome of hearing, you know, here's what's coming if you don't. We ought to thank God for warning us. In fact, we ought to be like an echo chamber that repeats it over and over and over again. We should not stop echoing the warnings so that some may be snatched from the fire. Come to Christ, we say. Come to Christ. Be reconciled to God. Stop rejecting Jesus Christ. That's our echo. That's our warning of judgment to come. What have we learned? What have we learned at least up to this point? Well, God doesn't make idle threats. What God says, He will do. Therefore, judgment's coming. And in His judgment, His righteousness and His righteousness will is His righteousness and His righteousness will be on display in full view. And then finally, number three. The apostate's true heart is on full display. The apostate's true heart is on full display. Notice verse 16. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. Jesus Christ castigated the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. Why? Because of their continued hypocrisy. Saying one thing, doing another. Saying they believe this, but didn't actually live it. Here's what he said to them. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers. Oh, what kind language by Jesus. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? 
How can you say all of this glorious words of goodness out of your mouth when you yourself are evil? You don't even believe what you're saying. In fact, you don't even carry it out. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, he said. So in other places, by their fruit, you'll know them. Matthew chapter 7, by your fruit, by their fruit, you'll know them. Apostates are known by their mouths. They're known by their mouths. Notice verse 16 says, first, they are grumblers. Grumblers. Grumbling is in actuality, by the way, complaining against God. What it is by its very nature. It's a continual sense of murmuring under one's breath. It's, it's basically going around and just murmuring in yourself. I don't like what's happening to me. I can't believe this is happening to me. Just murmur, constant murmur. This was the character of Israel. Character of Israel through the Old Testament, continuously over time with God, they just grumbled about whatever God was doing or what he was not doing. This was a conviction upon my heart, even studying this this week, because we get in that tendency, right? We're in life. We're going through life. Things are going the way they're going as God has allowed them for the circumstances of our very day and our very hour. And we get into these patterns where we're just murmuring. We may not be saying it to somebody else, but we're certainly saying it in our heart and we're just complaining against what God's doing. And of course, then that leads to the second in this list, which is finding fault, finding fault. Some of your translations might even say complainers, complainers. That's what murmuring does in action. It just comes out in complaining. Complaining is simply that outward expression of a grumbling heart. In fact, the English standard version uses the word malcontents. They're malcontents. The original word actually carries the meaning of assigning blame. That's, that's the idea. That's why finding fault is, a, is a, I think, a good translation the New American Standard gives. In other words, the apostate is one who is constantly discontent, constantly dissatisfied with God, and dissatisfied with his plans, dissatisfied with his purchase, purposes, and therefore he assigns blame to God. God, if things were better, life would be better. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't follow after the things of God. The apostate doesn't follow after the things of God, could care less about the things of God, but rather he follows after, notice, his own lusts. They're grumblers, fault finders, and they're following after their own lusts. That's why they're like that. That's number three. They grumble. That's the heart issue. And so they complain, and they find fault with God, because God wants what God wants is not what they want. They're self-willed. That's what he says. They're self-willed. Follow after their own desires. That's the idea. Following after their own lust. Their epithumia, their strong desires, what they want, their own heart. They're not interested in what God desires. They're interested in what they desire. Their own heart is what's on display all the time. And so what happens? They begin to speak arrogantly. Not just about themselves, not just about who they are. Hey, look at me. I'm a pretty big guy. I'm pretty important here. More importantly... They arrogantly speak about what they seem to know religiously, and yet they don't know at all. Remember how Jude described them? They are clouds without water. They look good. They got all the fluff. No help. Nothing nourishing, nothing satisfying, nothing to quench your thirst. They look good. They can even be enjoyable to be around. I, I love to see the blue sky with nice fluffy white clouds in it. Beautiful. Looks clean. Doesn't have anything to help. Therefore, the apostate is like that. They speak arrogantly. They're all talk, but they're no help at all. No substance. They have a lot of spiritual words. They give no help. It's all empty. And so what do they have to refer to? What do they have? What are the, what's the only thing they got to go on? 
try to entice people by their own flesh, they flatter people for the sake of gaining advantage. They flatter people. What's Jude saying? He's saying that these kinds of people will tell people what they want to hear just to get what they want. They'll tell people what they want to hear so that it impacts them and they get whatever it is they want. This is exactly what Paul said to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, you preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Exactly what we see happening in many places in evangelicalism today. Teachers who will say whatever they need to say for the sake of gaining advantage, this whole reality and heresy of the social justice movement infiltrating the church is part of that. Don't buy off on it. It's a lie. They're flatterers. What they say, they say simply because they know people want to hear it. They're master manipulators. That's what Jude's saying. They're master manipulators. Remember, remember that from Numbers chapter 16? In fact, I think it's important we hear this again. I want us to go back there for a moment. Numbers chapter 16. I think this is a good place for us to kind of end our time this morning. Just listen to what happened. Remember, this is the whole incident of Korah, right? They were, they're like Korah. Just listen to what happened in verse chapter 16 of Numbers. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son with Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of per Perleth, the sons, sons of Reuben, took action. What was the action? They rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel. In fact, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. So these weren't untheologically sound guys. These were leaders in the nation of Israel. And they rise up against Moses and they assemble together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now there's their complaint. There's their grumbling. There's the outworking of the lust of their heart. And so what does Moses do? When Moses hears this, he falls on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company. So all these 250 plus people. He said, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose and he will bring near to himself. So do this, take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Talking about the priests. You've gone far enough, you priests. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, isn't it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking the priesthood also? He said, listen, he gave you all of this ministry to do in his church, and you want more? 
You want a higher position, if you will. You have this self-ambition in yourself. Therefore, you and all your congregation are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is that you grumble against? Who is he that you grumble against him? And as Moses sent summons to Dathan and Abraham, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we're not going to come. Is it enough that you have brought us up from the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you also want to lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us any inheritance of the fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. He said, even if you put their eyes out, we're not not going to listen to you, Moses. And then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not regard their offering. I'm sure he didn't say it with that soft of a voice. He was angry. He said, I've not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done any harm to any of them. And Moses said to Corey, you and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. And each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. And so they each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the door of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Then the Lord spoke. He spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I might consume them instantly. Now, if you and I were standing there at that time, we'd have said, fine, have it your way. Right? That's where our heart goes. Fine, have it your way. Notice what Moses does. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and said, Oh God, you God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? In other words, Lord, these, these guys are leading the case. They're, they're leading the cause. Don't, don't, don't consume those who have been swept up in their foolishness. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation. Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, Abram. And then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abram and the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belonged to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. And so they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan and Abram, and Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents. There's the arrogance. Yeah, what's going to happen to us? Along with their wives, their sons, their little ones. And Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men... Or if they suffer a fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. In other words, if they just die a normal death and go on in natural life and, hey, everything's fine, then guess what? Stop listening to me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, they shall descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Then God doesn't make idle threats came about as he had finished speaking all these words that the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. And so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Wow. Shocking. You come against God, God's coming against you. And all of Israel, verse 34, who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, the earth is going to swallow us up. And fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. You don't bring that kind of thing before God as God is not authorized. And so Moses goes on and he speaks to them and they still murmur and Complain. You see verse 41, on the next day, 
all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and said, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. And it came about that when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from this congregation that I may consume them instantly. Moses fell on their faces. Take your censers. Moses said to Aaron, take your censers and put fire in it from the altar and lay incense on it. In other words, do what you are required by God to do as the priest of this place and bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for the wrath of God has gone forth from the Lord and the plague has begun. In other words, from that very moment that God said, get away from them, God had sent a killing plague instantly and people were dropping like flies. It wasn't, oh, gee, I feel ill. I, I might, I might. I think I might be sick. No, they were dropping like flies. And then Aaron and Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made an atonement for the people. And he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But by those times, by that time, those who died by the plague were 14,700. I mean, people were dropping all over the place. besides those who had died on account of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting because the plague had been checked. Right after this, God doesn't slow down in his seriousness about his righteousness. He says, you, you find those leaders, you find those leaders who are still there of Israel. You speak to the sons of Israel and you have them bring an olive branch and and Aaron bring an olive branch, and the one that buds is the one that's going to be my, my person. And of course, Aaron's olive branch budded and produced, and nobody else's did. And then the God reiterates in verse chapter 17, verse 13, everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Right? You come near to the things of God, the holiness of God without... God's approval, God's wrath is there. Korah's words had great influence. Great influence upon the people of God and the consequences of his sin were upon not only him, but all others who sinned in like manner through his influence. That's the danger of that kind of influence in the church. That's the danger of that kind of influence in our very lives. This is why it's such a caution to us about the apostate. Jude is telling us that God will not be mocked. These people will be judged. Certainly they may gain advantage through showing favoritism to some, but they will have no favoritism before God. Judgment day is coming. And as a Christians, knowing that, we, we therefore must look upon the world with the eyes of Christ. We have to see them as those who face a very real and eternal judgment before God. If they will not repent, judgment is coming. God has been continually warning us that his judgment is coming. And therefore, you and I as Christians must heed his warning and call people to flee from the wrath to come. Oh, certainly God is willing to forgive. God hates the death of the wicked. He's willing to forgive, but only on his terms. They must turn from their wickedness and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's the only way. The only way. There is no other way. That's why Jude says in verse 17, we'll get to this next time, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What words should you be listening to? Not those of the apostate. Not those of the fool. Those of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's prepare our hearts for worship around the communion table. Would you bow with me?
Father, we're thankful, thankful for hearing these words of sobriety. Judgment is coming. That you are not someone who makes idle threats. Your word is absolute, is true through and through. That your righteousness is visible now in all that you've made, especially in the salvation of those who are dead and have been brought to life through Christ. And on judgment day, your righteousness and glory will be seen in ways unimaginable as you and the holy angels come to reap what is yours. Lord, help our hearts to be compassionate, to not be prideful, to be humble. Know that we didn't deserve anything we've received from you. We are just instruments in your hand that others might know Christ. So we plead, we plead with others, come to Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ, repent of your sin, embrace life. Lord, honor your name now as we even prepare our hearts for this communion time as we sing together in Jesus' name, amen.